Okay, unless you just fell off a turnip truck, it can't possibly escape your notice that there is a fundamental, deliberate move on the part of the Democratic Communist Party of the United States of America and the uber-left to fundamentally alter this country's government, to disavow its founding, and to continue to take us down an irreversible road to socialism and then to communism. I really don't think they can get us all the way to communism just under this stupid idiot that they've elected uh, by contrivance and by ruse and artifice, but uh, they can certainly put us on the path to an almost irreversible socialism, getting people seduced and used to socialized medicine and a host of other factors, guaranteed minimal income, and thinking they can do all this by taxing the richest 1%. If they took all of the money of the richest 1%, they could fund uh, the State Department for about three months. They could fund the government for maybe six or seven of one year, and that would be it. I think I don't think they could even fund the government. They could fund the, uh, the State Department, and that's about it. And then after that, it would be bust. And then where's the rest of the money come from? Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. And you can do so by simply going to the iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, and searching the NPO podcast and clicking subscribe. And the alternative, if you wish to use a third-party podcast aggregator app, just download the free Podbean app in either of those two places. Myself and many others who do podcasts use that as a hosting service, and you can subscribe that way. Any way you would like to subscribe, you will always be notified when a new episode is uploaded. You can leave comments, you can ask questions, you can make reviews or leave reviews. And we do ask that you leave some reviews for us. The more positive reviews that we receive and the more positive they are, the faster the program will go because the more readily it will be discovered in search results when people search those uh, respective app stores for new conservative content. So we thank you for that. As always, if you have a question for any of us here at National Preview or a question for me, simply email us or email me at nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com. As always, we're, I'm also available for uh, speaking engagements. You can find us advertised on the internet for that. But right now, let's get back to the business at hand. As I said when I opened the program, there is a studied, deliberate attempt to fundally, uh, fundamentally remake this country uh, and send us on an irreversible path to socialism. One of the ways they're doing this is to completely erode confidence in the law and law enforcement. Uh, In fact, those two things are inextricably connected. One of the quickest ways to undermine confidence in the law is to have everyone fearful and undermine confidence in law enforcement. Now, how do you do that? Well, you simply try and disproportionately publicize any action on the part of the police that involves any sort of use of force, particularly lethal force, and then disproportionately report on it to create the impression that this is happening every day, every minute of every day, in every community across the country, and the only people who are being victimized by this unauthorized, and it's all assumed to be unauthorized and unwarranted use of force, are people of color. And nothing could be further from the truth. 
The number of firearms incidents or use of force incidents on the part of police is far lower today than it was back in the 70s. Back then, firearms discharge rates were much higher and the total number of shooting victims were much higher. We're now currently down to about as low as you can reasonably expect. So rather than focus on all this nonsense uh, that's going on in the news today with the likes of uh, well-informed experts like LeBron James and those jerks over at CNN and the dumbest man in broadcast news, Mr. Don Lemon, let's look at some facts. Facts always help to color things. Uh, In the New York City Police Department, we have several uh, very, very interesting pieces of information that I think it would be behoove us to look at. The New York City Police Department, in a given year, gets something on the order of six million radio runs, six million calls for service. Now, this is not the cops just rolling up on things. These are situations where the civilians, the people of the city of New York, have called 911 six million times in a given year asking for police service. Now, admittedly, not all of these calls involve uh, crimes per se, but a number of them do. And the police department keeps very, very detailed records of use of force. In fact, they have a form in New York City called the Firearms Assault Discharge, uh, Firearms Assault, Firearms Assault Discharge Report, something along those lines. Basically, whenever an officer is assaulted and or fires his firearm, a detailed report is filed uh, so that they can use it as a database to get an idea of what distance do most shootings take place in New York City. Many police departments rely on that data from the FBI, but the FBI is correlating data from all over the country, and it's not as hyper-accurate for New York City as the uh, reports that are generated by the actual NYPD. Now, in 2018, for example, which is a year we have the most recent number of, uh, of reports for, it shows that the cops had to use some measure of force, something on the order of 7,879 times. Now, that's not 7,000 firearms. That's using some force, whether you had to physically grab somebody and push somebody down because somebody resisted arrests, whether you had to hit him with an impact weapon or use mace or whether a canine unit was was used, so forth. Now, that's 500 more than in 2017, but there were more protests then. Uh, There were 246,781 arrests affected. So that's 7,879 times that force was used in a year when we had 2,000, I'm trying to find my calculator, uh, 246,781 arrests. So now, if you go to your calculator and you punch in 7,879 arrests and you divide it by 246,781, you find that you get 3%. So having to use force 3% of the time and that's not firearms force we're talking about, uh, that's hardly something that we would call gratuitous violence. Now, the majority of these uh, incidents of force were physical force, punches, kicks, takedowns, uh, pepper spray, taser, 
That accounts for 94% of this 7,879 incidents of use of force. 94%. Just wrap your head around that number. Now, the canine bites were 12 that year, up from 7 the previous year, 2017. Now, that's such a low number in and of itself that it's almost statistically insignificant. Now, so far this year, and this article that I'm taking this from is from back in December 19. So as of December 4th, 2019, officer-involved shootings in the NYPD numbered 22. 22. 12 of which resulted in fatalities. Now, there were 15 people shot by police officers in 2018 five of whom died. Now, let's look at that. We had 246,000 arrests in 2018. We had 15 people shot. 15. That's it. Do the math. 15 divided by 246,781. And you've got, you can't even measure it. It's like six ten thousandths of 1%. To suggest that 15 people shot, only five of whom died, out of 246,000 arrests, out of hundreds of thousands of interactions with the public, to suggest that there's some sort of racial agenda here, is ludicrous because I'm sure listening to what you hear from CNN and the people like uh, Don Lemon and the Chris Cuomo's and the other idiots, Morning Joe Scarborough, that idiot, and uh, Mika Brzezinski, um, the daughter of one of the most ineffectual national security advisors of all time, having been employed by the most ineffectual president, Jimmy Carter. you would think this sort of thing is going on every day, that just black people are just being cut down and shot and big numbers and all this. this is, these are very, very, very small numbers. So I mention this to give you a realistic backdrop of what the actual situation is on the ground in one of the busiest cities in the country with arguably the most highly scrutinized police department in this country. And yet there's no there there. But when you look at what's going on in the wake of these things, you find something very, very different. Now, the latest, we had a couple in recent weeks. We had um, a lot of things happening the past week. We had the conviction of uh, officer, former Officer Chauvin in uh, Minneapolis, and people still rioted in Portland, even though he was convicted. People saying, well, a just verdict, but it's not justice, because they still want you to believe that there's this rampant use of force. And every incident they cite as a rampant use of force, if you really look into it, you find that there's, there's teeth to why the police use this force. There's merit to the use of force by the police officers. Now, the latest one immediately following that was this Dante Wright character. Oh, yeah, just another innocent young man, a family man, a man who posts videos of himself wielding illegal handguns that he has no business holding, and a man 
who, as I've said before in the show, was wanted for aggravated robbery back on February 11th. He gets stopped for a minor infraction. That minor infraction brings him to the attention of law enforcement. Perhaps they were going to an issue with summons, but you can't issue a summons to an unidentified person because you may be issuing a summons to a criminal or someone that's wanted. You can't let someone slip through your fingers that's wanted. And so they ran his name. They found out that he had a warrant, that he was wanted for this aggravated robbery, and they proceeded to cuff him. Now Dante realizes that he's been outed. They're going to cuff him, and he breaks free and tries to run away. Now, he was wrong to do that. Uh, he knew he was, he was caught dead to rights. You want to start resisting arrest? Uh, you take a certain measure of responsibility for what follows. There was an escalation. Now, the officer clearly didn't want to shoot him. She said, taser, 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 no fewer than three times that I heard, which indicated two things. She was warning him that she was going to use her taser imminently. And two, she was going to use a taser rather than her firearm. That was her intention. So she clearly had no intention to shoot him. It is tragic and unfortunate that she reached in this heat of the moment and grabbed her firearm instead of her taser. uh, And that caused the problem. Now, I'm not up on what every law enforcement agency does, but I could see it being problematic if a person is taught or trained to fire their taser with their strong hand or their firearm hand, because that would mean that the taser would have to be worn on the officer's gun belt on the same side, either in front or behind of the firearm, and one could see how this sort of thing could easily take place. Uh, Now, naturally, if you fire something with your strong hand, you're going to be a lot more accurate than if you're firing it with your weak hand, but you have this risk. So I would suspect that one way of avoiding this would be training in teaching people how to fire the taser uh, with the weak hand. And since situations firing a taser should theoretically not be as tense as using a firearm, you would think that uh, there would be less adrenaline going and that any reduction in accuracy would be acceptable. In point of fact, police officers are taught how to fire their firearms with their weak hand if ever their strong hand or their regular gun hand or arm is disabled as a result of a confrontation, either a physical confrontation that escalates or a gunshot wound or a stabbing wound. So there is merit to knowing how to fire uh, with your weak hand. This was a tragedy, but it certainly wasn't intentional on the part of Officer Kim Potter, who has since resigned and has now been charged with second-degree manslaughter, even before a grand jury has been convened. And of course, the latest in this string of uh, presumably racist actions on the part of police officers is the shooting of this Makia Bryant. Okay, Now, right away... CNN was over there looking to make hay over this. Everyone jumps on board and couldn't wait to try and accuse the officer of being wrong. And you have Kobe Bryant, who foolishly posted a tweet and saying, you're next under the incident or the picture of the officer. Uh, So much so that the the league pressured Bryant that he had to pull it down because the facts began to emerge afterward and it became... Uh, pretty obvious that that was an ill-advised tweet and it was not uh, reflective of the facts. Uh, 
he posted on Wednesday a photo of Officer Reardon outing him with a comment, you're next. That's no way to do it. Now, a lot of information has come out about this. We have a foster parent of uh, Makia Bryant saying it was all over house cleaning, and that's how it happened because she has a couple of foster kids there. We have a neighbor, a McKee and Bryant's neighbor, says a video suggesting that the police officer had no choice but to shoot the teenager. McKee and Bryant's neighbor, reading from this article, whose security camera captured the moment the Ohio teenager was shot by a police officer. So now we have an independent camera, not that's simply the body cam footage of the officer, which people will no doubt uh, will accuse the police department of doctoring. But now we have an independent security camera video, which is going to verify the officer's body cam footage. Has said officers had no other choice. Donovan Brinson watched the incident as it began to unfold on April 20th as he pulled into his driveway, which is located across the street from where the shooting took place. The footage was captured by his garage security cameras. They were calling each other the B-word, which I assume is bitch. So I figured it was just a girl fight. Brinson said the intensity of the fight increased when he was taking his dog out back. The yelling had escalated, so he went back into his home. He claimed that the Columbus police then arrived. He heard four shots, prompting his wife, Rachel, to duck to the floor. Brinson said he looked out the window of his laundry room and saw that 16-year-old Makia Bryant had been shot and was lying on the ground. Afterward, the neighbor then reviews the 26-second video from his surveillance camera and saw the glimpse of a knife and concluded that Bryant may have fatally stabbed multiple bystanders had the officer not acted immediately to stop the threat. It was all violent. He goes, it was violent and it all just happened so fast. He mentioned seeing a girl wearing pink, who was the second female involved with Bryant in the scuffle. Brinson, who handed his video over to police, said he believed that more people might have died had police not taken action. Body camera footage released by the Ohio police shows an officer approaching a driveway where a group of people are standing. Soon after which, Bryant, who can be seen holding a knife, appears to attack another girl who falls to the ground. That person was kicked and stomped, by the way, by another man. Bryant then turns around and appears to try to stab another girl in pink clothing. The officer then opens fire at Bryant, after which she falls to the ground. Now, let me ask you this question. People are all upset because someone with a knife that had no right to have it and was using it against people she had no right to use it against, was shot by the police. And because she was shot, this is bad. So tell me what happens if the officer doesn't shoot and Bryant stabs the girl in pink, goes back and stabs another person, and those people are either seriously injured or they die. Uh, Is that just an acceptable loss? This other black person, I guess, so it's okay if a black person is stabbed or killed or shot as long as it's another black person that does it who's assuming, of course, that that black person is not a police officer. That's okay. That's acceptable loss of life. 
So it's okay for black people to be killed by other black people. Moreover, it's okay for innocent black people to be killed by other black people. But it's wrong for black people, or anyone for that matter, who's engaged in illegal conduct and threatening the life of another human being from being preemptively shot by a police officer to save life. That is simply not within our public lexicon. We have to just abandon that and just turn justice upside down. Who the hell is putting these laws together and who's putting out this this sort of gobbledygook as the new standard by which we should have it? Do you realize that in the city of Chicago, you have this Mayor Lightfoot, who should be called Mayor Foot in her mouth, saying that she wants the police now to get permission before they engage in a foot pursuit because some perp was shot by an officer after a foot pursuit? No one should have to lose their lives over a foot pursuit. I got news for you, Mayor Foot in your mouth. They're not losing lives or getting shot over a foot pursuit. They're getting shot or losing their life over the thing that caused the officer to get into a foot pursuit in the first place, probably running away from a robbery or a homicide or a drug deal or some other sort of untoward conduct. Now, there's also a whole bunch of liberals out there that are saying, well, it's not unreasonable. After all, many Municipalities require police officers to get a supervisor's permission before they can engage in a vehicular pursuit. Now, that's true. Many uh, police departments, I believe even the New York City Police Department, must have permission from a supervisor, (coughs) excuse me, before they can engage in a pursuit. Or if they're told to break off the pursuit by the police officer on the radio, they must do it. And that is a judgment made by the supervisor because... It depends on what they're chasing him for. Because vehicles are so big, and if they get out of control or they hit civilians that are running across the street who are not watching, that there's a great potential for death from an accidental uh, civilian collision uh, from the vehicle, the police department in the city that employs it wants to know that the risk is outweighed by the greater end of apprehending this person. If you're chasing someone on a high-speed chase because they ran a red light, you know, maybe you want to chase them a little bit, but how far do you want to chase them before you have to pull the plug? Because you know you can't justify an accident where you hit a civilian or a child that ran out between two parked cars because you were pursuing someone for a red light. On the other hand, if this person just committed a murder or murdered a police officer, uh, or someone else, uh, no one's going to tell you to not to not to pursue. Um, you're going to go till the ends of the earth. In fact, I'd venture to say that in the murder of a police officer, even if the supervisor orders the officers to stop pursuing, uh, the officers, if they're worth their salt, are probably going to continue to pursue anyway because they're not going to let their brother officer or sister officer uh, die in vain and watch their attackers um, escape because of some bureaucracy that says that they can't pursue. So these are all very interesting things. These are all interesting policies that can be debated. But how does that follow? How does that same logic follow or apply to a foot pursuit? There's no danger to the civilian population of a foot pursuit. What's the officer going to run over somebody that, with his body as they run out from in between an alley? No. A foot pursuit, of all the pursuits that you could possibly have, are probably one of the safest pursuits. Uh, And by definition, they're not going to have much in the way of longevity. Very few police officers, particularly those in uniform, 
are going to be in the physical condition to be able to engage in a foot pursuit for any protracted period of time, given the amount of equipment that they carry. Uh, it's going to weigh them down real quick. So unless that pursuit is over in short order, it's not much of a pursuit. So this is just a slow erosion of the tools of law enforcement to make it that much more difficult for them to execute their assigned duties. The next little tidbit of information that we want to share with you here, you've heard calls for it, enhanced use of tasers. Now, I'm all in favor of enhanced use of tasers, but the conditions under which these tasers are used uh, must be considered. For instance, I think it's a terrible mistake to mandate that officers use a taser even when deadly physical force is being used against them. And I've discussed this on this show before. The minute that you start making it known to criminals that they possess deadly physical force and can aim it at a police officer, and that police officer does not have the ability to use deadly physical force against them or is using a taser, you're only increasing the likelihood that this criminal is going to fire upon that officer. Because most of these people have no respect for the law. They have no fear of going to prison. They seem to like it. Uh, and so, therefore, the only thing that would give them a moment of pause, uh, the only thing they fear is perhaps deadly physical force being visited back upon them. Now, if you want to put it at an officer's discretion and say, if the officer chooses to use a taser, he may, that's fine, because the reality is that any officer... Uh, makes the final decision as to whether or not he or she is going to use deadly physical force. There are some officers that may decide, uh, probably wrongfully, to not use deadly physical force against the knife and try and knock the knife out of somebody's hand with a nightstick. Uh, that has been floated in the past by certain police supervisors, but it's not always the wisest thing. There are many, many very fine training films that have been pr produced by a number of organizations one of the most famous was uh, done early on in the 80s called Surviving Edged Weapons, where they were able to demonstrate quite adequately that a trained knife fighter could attack a uniformed officer who had his sidearm still in his holster in a standard patrol rig from a distance of 21 feet before that officer could draw that gun and levy effective fire against that person. Because the fact that you can draw, aim, and fire isn't a guarantee you're going to hit a moving target. And even hitting a moving target isn't a guarantee that that round is going to impact that perpetrator in an area of his body that's going to incapacitate or slow him. Indeed, if the man is pharmacologically enhanced with some type of drugs on board, he may not be stopped at all. We have a case in New York City many, many years ago where uh, a sergeant with his revolver shot a man with a knife, emptied all six rounds into the man. The chauffeur, I think, put two or three more into him, and that man was still successful in reaching the sergeant and stabbing him to death. So, so this notion that knives don't pose a risk and this innocent young girl was just that, an innocent young girl. No, she was a thug. She was a thug engaging in thug-like behavior. Now, she may have been young, but she was still a thug. You know, people often forget the role of family 
in the upbringing of children. We certainly seem to have forgotten it here. Hollywood is uber-leftist, but there's one actor whom I've gained great respect for because he seems like a real regular guy, and he grew up not far from me, and that's Denzel Washington. I've heard him on numerous interviews where he talks about the system, and he doesn't blame the system to the extent that other people do. He says quite correctly, by the time the child gets to the system, it's already too late. This problem should have been corrected. Where was his father? And then the interviewer would say, well, his, he came from a broken home. He didn't have a father. And so then he would say, well, where was his father? And it's true. The breakdown of the family unit has been the primary cause of this slouching towards Gomorrah, as the late Justice Robert Bork put it. But to wind this all down and put it in perspective, For those of you who think it's unfortunate that 16-year-olds come to grief because they engage in violent acts, I agree with you, it is unfortunate. But that doesn't make it the fault of the system, and it doesn't make it the fault of the police. It calls to mind that old Walt Disney film that I used to like so much when I was a kid, Old Yeller. For those of you who don't know the story of Old Yeller, or never saw the film, I'd advise you to do so. It's about a dog. Took place during the Civil War. The father was off to battle for the South. And the boy was charged with taking care of his family till his father came back. He was a young man, teenager, and he befriended this dog. And this dog became a great friend to the family, defended the family, in fact, saved the family's life when they were attacked at their campfire one night by a wolf, killed the wolf, and suffered some wounds in the process. But the mother pointed out quite correctly that no wolf would have attacked him that way by a fire, and that it was good that Old Yeller killed him, but it wasn't good for Old Yeller. See, the mother knew that the wolf probably had rabies. So she locked up Old Yeller, and sure enough... Within a couple of weeks, Old Yeller started to change. Old Yeller unfortunately contracted rabies, and he was now a danger. It wasn't Old Yeller's fault. It wasn't his fault at all. Old Yeller was a hero. Just like it may not be the fault of some of these children that they have become what they have become. But that doesn't change the matter. Regardless of whose fault it is, They're rabid and wild, and in some cases, they can't be rehabilitated, just as in the case of rabies, where it's almost always fatal after symptoms appear. The boy loved Old Yeller, but when he became sick, it was time for Old Yeller to go. So while it's very convenient to blame the police officers for the deaths of these children... The scenarios, the dynamics that brought about these fateful confrontations were in place long before that police officer ever got up for work that morning and went to work with never a thought that he was ever going to have to shoot somebody or she was going to have to shoot somebody. So before you start judging every officer thinking he was on patrol with an agenda, maybe you should think about that. For National Preview Online... 
I'm Jamie Dury.